0: Good morning everyone. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Uh, It is always my great pleasure and especially a pleasure when Dada opens in worship uh, to be able to follow on from him and to open the word of God together. Um, This morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 119 so I'd invite you to turn there if you've got your Bibles uh, with you. It seems like the Psalms is a heavy emphasis that the Lord wanted us to pay attention to this morning. We've heard from Psalm 51, Psalm 103, now Psalm 119. So we look forward to seeing what God wants to teach us through this psalm. So, Psalm 119. It's a long one. In fact, it's about 22 times the length of an average psalm, making it the longest of the psalms, the longest chapter in the whole Bible. So we're not going to work systematically through it. Don't worry, Mama. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to do an overview of the psalm and we're going to drop anchor mostly in the the first stanza or the first eight verses of the psalm and drift around a little bit to other parts as we go. Before we do consider it, um, how about we just come before the Lord again one time in prayer together. Lord, we thank you for this, uh, your word. We thank you that we have such free access to it. Lord, as we come and we read your word, we ask that your spirit would move in our hearts to help us to hear and to understand it, and to be changed by it. Lord, would you be glorified through your word this morning. Amen. Now, I want to be upfront about my objective for this morning. My goal is not to do an exhaustive study of of this psalm, and it's not actually to share some amazing or novel insight. Instead what I'm hoping that we'll do is that as we work together through this psalm we'll understand how to read it, uh, how to enjoy it and to be refreshed as we consider what its focus is or what the topic of this psalm is. I want us to leave here today with enough understanding that we could go home and we would know how to meditate upon this psalm and that we'd want to meditate more on it. I want us to meditate on it this day, this week as we go forward in the years to come. Now, some of you probably know a bit about this psalm already. As I said, it's quite a a famous psalm because of its length, but also because of what's in it. It contains many um, famous, beautiful, quotable verses. Uh, Let me read a couple to you. You don't have to turn to them, and and just see if you recognise these. Verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word, O God. Verse 11, the author writes, I have stored up your word, O God, in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Later on, in verse 67, he writes, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And then back in the beginning, in verse 18, he asks, Open my eyes, God, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And then perhaps the most famous verse in the psalm, in in verse 105, the author writes, Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Hopefully you've recognised some of those verses as we've read. They're they're sort of smattered across the 176 verses of this long psalm. But the psalm is interesting for more than just what's in it. It's actually quite uh, interesting because of the way that it's been organised. It's been organised or constructed in a very specific way. and Perhaps you can see that as you look through over the, the psalm as a whole. Maybe as you scan across the psalm, you'll, you'll see that it's kind of organised into these chunks or stanzas. And perhaps in your Bible, at the heading of each chunk or stanza, there's a Hebrew word, a Hebrew title. You might see them there, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, and so on. Every eight verses in this, in this psalm, there is a new stanza, and each stanza is accompanied with its own Hebrew title. Now those titles are not Hebrew names or or Hebrew places or things like that. They're actually just the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So Aleph is A and Beth is B and Gimel is C and so on. Through all 22 of the Hebrew letters of the alphabet. So the psalm is actually organised as kind of an acrostic poem in the Hebrew alphabet. The first Eight lines in, the, in stanza one each begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, A. And then the second eight lines in stanza two begin with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet and so on. And unfortunately it doesn't really translate into English, right? So most of your Bibles won't uh, have the first eight verses all starting with the letter A. Occasionally there's a translation that, that um, attempts that, but it gets very difficult, particularly with the X's and the Y's and the Z's. So we don't necessarily notice the pattern or or the structure that that, uh, is here. But the Hebrew reader would have noticed this straight away. Which leads us to a question. Why do you think the author would organise the psalm like this? Why would he organise it into an acrostic? The answer is quite simple. To help God's people to memorise it. God intended us to know this psalm. And so he organises it into a helpful acrostic. And that's really the first kind of key lesson that I want us to take away from this morning. The first thing that we know about Psalm 119 is that God wants us to know it. God wants his people to know Psalm 119. And so he inspired its author to deliberately craft it in a way that was helpful to memorisation. It's meant to be known and used, not avoided because it's long. Well, that leads us to another question. Why is it so long? It's 22 times the length of an average psalm, as I've already mentioned. We're not given a definitive reason. The author doesn't state why it's so long. But the most likely explanation is that this psalm wasn't written in a single day. Instead, it's actually likely the compilation of many praises, prayers and protests that the author wrote down over the days, months and years of his life. It's quite likely that the author of this psalm, who who remains unknown but is probably either David or Ezra or Daniel, it's quite likely that this author is quite old when he pens the psalm. And throughout his life, at various stages, he's offered up praises to God. At other times, he's prayed to God, beseeching his help. And at other times, he's protested before God about the iniquity and wickedness that he sees all around him. And on each of those occasions, he wrote down these words of praise, prayer, or protestation, and towards the end of his days, he gathered them all together and kind of skillfully organises them into this psalm. The early parts of the psalm are likely written During the beginnings of this man's life. So, while he's a young man, the middle stanzas give us an insight into middle age. And the closing parts of the psalm reflect the author's focus as he approaches death. It is then, if you like, a kind of autobiography of a godly life. It's the complete meditation, reflection, praise, and prayer of a godly life from beginning to end. In reading the psalm, if you you take time to go slowly through it, it's, it's quite obvious that this is the fruit of a deep experience, a fruit of careful observation and earnest meditation over many years. It's not just a long and boring psalm that we only read because it stands in the way of getting to Psalm 120. Properly understood, the psalm is anything but shallow or boring. I love this quote from Spurgeon. Commenting on the psalm, he writes... Placid on the surface as a sea of glass before the eternal throne. Yet it contains within its depths an ocean of fire. There is depth here. Beautiful, rich depth. And something interesting, another thing I guess, interesting about the psalm is that it's intended for private devotion. It's not a prayer of the assembly of Israel on their way up to Jerusalem. Nor is it an imprecatory prayer prayed by a leader of the nation of Israel against the nations. It is instead a collection of meditations on God. Likely spanning, as we've said, the decades of the life of a faithful servant who knows him well. And so God intends it for our meditation as well. Matthew Henry, who's a well-known Puritan and commentator on the Psalms, tells of how his father advised him to to read and meditate on just one verse of psalm 119 every day before he would do the rest of his scripture reading and over the 176 days that it would take him to get through that's roughly half a year so in the year he would read through psalm 119 twice and his father said to him this will bring you to be in love with the rest of the scriptures and that's the outcome i'm hoping for us today as well So, with all that as kind of a necessary introduction, I hope you are now as eager as I am to peel back a little bit of this psalm together and to dip our toe, as it were, into the ocean of its richness. To do this, we're going to read uh, through the first stanza of the psalm, the first eight verses. So I'd invite you to um, look in your Bibles there and to follow along with me. I'll be reading from the ESV. Starting in verse 1, the author writes, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn of your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. What's the subject of the psalm? It appears in each of these verses in the first stanza. Can you see it there? The subject of the psalm is the law of the Lord. Can you see that in verse 1? Elsewhere it's called the word of the Lord. That singular subject is mentioned in every one of the 22 stanzas. Now, in light of what we've just learned about how this psalm was constructed, that means that the subject, God's law, his word, occupied the focus of the author's life from beginning to end. The consistent theme of his meditation, praise, prayer and thought was the law of God. Now, throughout the psalm, there are several different terms used to describe the law. Uh, you can see them in, in stanza 1, for instance, where he refers to the law in verse 1, and then he calls it uh, your testimonies, your commandments, your precepts, your rules, your statutes. So each of those terms is, is a reference to God's word, but they're not strictly interchangeable. That is, they're not exactly the same. Um, each word has a slightly different uh, emphasis or nuance, and, and it sheds light on a slightly different element of God's law. For example, where where the author uses the word law, he's drawing attention to the words which come from God as the sovereign ruler over men. This is his direct revealed instruction. So law can be used to refer to any single command, for example, given by Moses. Law can refer to the whole law of Moses. Wherever we see the word law, we, as the reader, are reminded that the instruction of God is not just for interest, but for obedience. Now, he also uses the word testimonies, which has a slightly different meaning from the word law. Testimonies is, is sort of originates from the, the Hebrew word meaning to bear witness to. And it was commonly used in the Old Testament for physical objects that bore witness to a covenant or promise that God had made. So, for example, at Mount Sinai, when God makes his covenant with his people, the stone tablets on which that covenant is written and the ark in which they were housed is referred to as the testimonies of God. These things bore witness to the covenant God had made with his people. Every time an Israelite would look at the ark of the covenant or the the, um, stone tablets within it, they would be reminded of the promises that God had made of his covenants. So when the psalmist uses the term testimonies, he's reflecting on God's word as a kind of witness or or, or witness to his promise and also a witness against his people when they break that promise. And then the the term word, for example, um, as in like your word, O Lord. uh, Word is obviously a much broader term and uh, it it goes to any revelation from God to man. So it goes even... uh, beyond the laws of the Old Testament. It includes any of the promises that God made. So, for example, when God spoke to Abraham, that was God's word to Abraham, his promise to make him a generation as as numerous as the stars of heaven. That's in scope here of Psalm 119. So all of God's revelation in the Old Testament included in this word, word. So, the subject of the psalm, is the law of God, the word of God. But that doesn't just mean the commandments written on the stone tablets at Sinai. No, The, the author is captivated by every word that comes from the mouth of God, every command, every decree, every testimony, every promise, every judgment, every insight given by the Holy Spirit, every conviction of God upon the conscience and every true prophecy. All of this is in view, which means that it's the scripture as a whole that's the focus of Psalm 119. Now, based on that, we can make a second key point. Remember, our first key point was that God wants us to know this psalm. And now we understand that it reflected the lifelong focus of a godly man and that the focus is the word of God. So our second key point for this morning is this. God's word is at the centre of of a godly life. Point one, God wants us to know this psalm. Point two, the psalm shows us that the Word of God is at the centre of a godly life. God wants us to know this psalm so that we can learn how to live a godly life by imitating its author and centering ourselves on the Word of God. But why? Why should God's word, his law, be central to the Christian life? Why does he want us to know it? Well, part of the reasons revealed in verse 4 of your psalm. Have a look there with me. The author writes, You, God, have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. One of the reasons God wants us to know his law is because he expects us to obey it. God hasn't merely given us his word for interest's sake. And our goal when we open our Bibles is not simply to accumulate more knowledge about what's in this book. God expects us to read and to understand what he has said about himself and about how we are to respond to him. And he expects us to obey his commandments. As the sovereign God and king, he makes commands and he expects us to diligently obey them. Now let me be crystal clear, and I know I don't have to be necessarily for this audience, but I want to. Obedience does not save us from our sin. The scripture is inescapably clear that the only way to be saved from our sin is to turn to God in repentance and to trust that Christ paid the penalty on Calvary's cross. We know that no amount of carefully following God's law can save us. Obedience doesn't lead to salvation. It flows from it. We're supposed to read God's law and be convicted by it when we realise that we can't obey it perfectly. We're supposed to read it and realise we've broken it so many times. We're supposed to read it and see that the wages of our sin is eternal death and separation from God. And that the only way to be forgiven from sin, the only way to be saved, is for a perfect substitute to come and die in our place. As Christians, we understand that perfect substitute was Jesus. We understand that in Jesus, God himself came and bore the penalty for our sin on Calvary's cross and rose again to show that the eternal death we deserve to die had been done away with. The Apostle Peter summarises it So simply when he says, he himself, that is Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree. That astonishing message of the gospel leads us to confess our sin and to place our trust in Jesus, believing that he took our place on Calvary's cross as our substitute. He bore the penalty that we deserve for our sin and we say, I believe that. I believe he died for me. And then... We ask God to turn our hearts away from the evil things that we once desired because we know he hates those things. And that's the last thing that we want to keep on doing. It's at this point that we look on the law as a blessed thing. It's a good thing because it shows us how to walk in obedience. We don't want to walk in the corruption and sin of our old way of life. We want to live in the way that he commands We don't want to do more of the sin that made it necessary for Christ to die. We want to be rid of that way. And God's word shows us the way to live as God wants. Which is why the full quotation from the Apostle Peter is not just he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. But he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We die to sin, and with God's word as our guide, we live to righteousness. We make it our ambition to know what his word says and to be obedient to it out of gratitude. To obey it diligently because it's pleasing to God. So I asked earlier, why why should God's word, his law, be central to the Christian life? Why, Why does God want us to know it? We've seen from verse 4 of our psalm that one of the reasons God wants us to know it is because it's showing us the way in which we are to live. And he expects us diligently to follow in this way. And we do this because we're grateful to our saviour. We obey him because we love him. Now there are several other reasons why God wants his word to be central to the Christian life. And we could talk about how God's word reveals his character. Or about how his word provides hope in affliction and those things are certainly contained here in Psalm 119. But the author of our psalm actually provides a very different and astonishing reason right at the outset of his passage. And the longer I reflect on this, the more astonishing it becomes to me. Have a look at verses 1 to 3. He says there, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed. Are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. Why should the word of God be central for the Christian? Here is the most beautiful of answers. Because the one who seeks the Lord and walks in his ways is blessed. Look at it there. Blessed are those who walk in his way, whose way is blameless. Blameless. We organize our lives around the word of God, not simply because it's a formality or because God has commanded us to do it, but because it brings blessing. What does it mean to be blessed? That word is used throughout the scriptures. But what does it mean? It means to have God smile on you. Proverbs eleven twenty 20 contrasts two groups of people when it says, On the one hand, those of a crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. To be blessed is to be the focus of the Lord's delight. Is that you? Are you the focus of the Lord's delight? St. Augustine defines it this way. The blessed man is the man who is to be congratulated. He is the man that is happy in life. And he makes another striking point on these verses. He says, you know what? Every single human being is seeking this blessing. That's true, isn't it? Think about it. What do people want in life? What do they desire? What do they wish for? What about you? Maybe it's something related to your career, a different career, a better career, a career at all. Maybe it's a job that pays better or has better hours. Maybe you're hanging out for that house or or boat or dream holiday abroad. Maybe you want to see blessing in your family. Maybe you're looking for a spouse. While we all may desire these different things, they all have one thing in common, and that is that they are all, in some form or other, a blessing. As human beings, we desire blessing. How is it found, then? Is it found in more possessions, in a larger or better furnished house, or in a perfect spouse, or boyfriend or girlfriend? No. God says that those who are blessed are those whose way is blameless. Or as some of your Bibles might have it, blessed are those who are undefiled. Being undefiled means being blameless. That is, walking perfectly according to God's law. How then can you be blessed? How can you be God's delight? By walking blamelessly in his ways. Isn't that amazing? We all have this inbuilt desire for blessing. I mean, surely you want this for yourselves, for your kids. It's natural. But let this psalm be a reminder to us that there is only one way that this can be found, and that is in following God's word. That is what we should be praying for and earnestly desiring for ourselves, for our kids, for each other. Before I move to a close, I want to share two thoughts with you. Number one, this promise still holds true for us. So this psalm was written at least two and a half thousand years ago. But its message of blessing for the righteous hasn't changed. How do I know this? Well, because the greatest sermon ever preached began with the exact same words. What's the greatest sermon ever preached? Well, I would contend it's the sermon recorded in the beginning of the Gospels, the sermon that Jesus preached, more commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. When God came and dwelt among men, do you know how he began his most famous sermon? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Those whom the Lord smiles upon, are those who walk in his ways, or as our Lord puts it, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Our Lord draws on Psalm 119 and affirms its continued truth. He confirms that the soul's desire for blessing can only be satisfied by walking in God's ways. Which leads us to our final point. How does a person come to the place where they can honestly say, the law is my delight? How do we come to the point where we can honestly say, I am walking in the commandments of God? That's a tough task, isn't it? It can be tempting for us to look at the words of our psalm and to respond not in praise, but perhaps in despair. Perhaps you read those words and you thought, that's not me. Perhaps those words lead you to sorrow and regret instead of hopeful expectation. Perhaps your spirit is not rejoicing in these words, but agitated because they seem to set an impossibly high standard or because there's some sin that you know is preventing you from reaching this. What do you do in this circumstance? Look with me at verses 5 and 6. In these verses, our psalmist says, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. You see the answer there? How do we come to the point where we can walk in God's ways? By crying to God for help. When the author says, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast, he is pleading with God for help. This is a prayer for divine aid. In fact, he spends a whole stanza of the psalm in prayer to God Requesting his help. Have a look at verses 33 to 40 of our psalm. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. And here he requests God help as an instructor. Verse 34, give me understanding that I may keep your law. Here he requests God's help in opening his mind and in changing his heart. Verse 35, lead me in the path of your commandments. Here he asks for God's help as shepherd, who will lead in the good ways. Verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Here he asks again for the work of God on his heart, to change it from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Here he asks God to make the world grow strangely dim. Verse 38, confirm to your servant your promise, that you may be feared. Here he asks God to remember his lowly servant. Verse 39, turn away the the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Here he asks God not to put him to shame. And verse 40, behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Here he asks the author of life for true and everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, that is the capstone of our message. By gazing at God's law, we're not simply to develop a thorough understanding of how to live. His words are supposed to lead us to cry out to him for help. Through this psalm we come to know and to understand that it is right for us to pour out our heart to God, confessing to him that we don't know him as we ought, and that even as his children, our eyes and our hearts can be turned aside from his ways, and so we must come to him in prayer. And we have confidence that God will answer this prayer. There is no doubt that God will answer this kind of prayer. Why? Why? because he commands us to have a heart like this and he knows that only he can make it so. When his children bow before him in prayer and they humbly ask him for help, they can be sure that their Father in heaven will answer. How do you respond to something like that? How do you respond to the sure and certain knowledge that God hears and answers this prayer? Look at verse 7. I will praise you. With an upright heart, when I learn of your righteous rules. Simply put, when God does answer your prayer, praise Him. I want to borrow again from Augustine. He says here that indeed, when my ways are made straight, I will confess unto you, since you have done it, and this is your praise and not mine. When you ask God to change you and when he answers in such a way that you see your life become conformed and obedient to his word, praise him. Praise him. At the outset of our time together, I told you my goal today was to provide us with the tools we need to understand how to read this psalm, how to enjoy it, and to be refreshed as we considered its focus. Together we've seen that God wants us to know this psalm, And so we inspired its author to construct it in a way that's helpful for our memorization and meditation. We've also come to understand that this psalm is the testimony of a godly life from beginning to end. And as we've explored the psalm together, we've seen that the singular focus of a godly life is the word of God. And finally, we've seen that great blessing flows from joyful obedience to God's word, from blamelessly walking in his ways. I hope that God's Spirit has moved in your heart to encourage you to read the rest of this psalm this week and that you'll take time to meditate upon it. I trust that in doing so, God might be glorified and that we might be benefited. I want to end with a quote from Spurgeon. While this doesn't capture the message of the psalm as well as the psalm itself, I think it's still fitting and useful to us. Spurgeon writes, The holy life is a walk. A steady progress, a quiet advance, a lasting continuance. Enoch walked with God. Good men and women always long to be better, and hence they go forward. Good men and women are never idle, and hence they do not lie down or loiter. But they are still walking onward toward their desired end. They are not hurried and worried and flurried. And so they keep the even tenor of their way, walking steadily towards heaven, And they are not in perplexity as to how to conduct themselves, for they have a perfect rule which they are happy to walk by. The law of the Lord is not irksome to them. Its commandments are not grievous, and its restrictions are not slavish in their self-esteem. It does not appear to them to be an impossible law, theoretically admirable but practically absurd, but they walk by it and in it. They do not consult it now and then as a sort of rectifier of their wanderings, but they use it as a chart for their daily sailing, a map for the road of their life journey. Their continued walk in the law of the Lord is their best testimony to the blessedness of such a condition of life. Yes, they are blessed, even now. The psalmist himself bore witness to the fact he had tried and proved it and wrote it down as a fact which defied all denial. Here it stands, in the topmost line of the greatest psalm, blessed are they who walk in the law of the Lord. Rough may be the way, stern the rule, hard the discipline, all these we know and more, but a thousand heaped up blessednesses are still found in godly living, for which we bless the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Help us to be like the psalmist. Lord, give us a love for your law, for your word, for the scriptures. May they be our comfort in affliction. May they be our ever-present hope. May they point us toward you. May they point us to salvation in Christ. May we grow more deeply in our knowledge of you through them. And in understanding of how to walk in your ways. Lord, teach us to depend upon you totally for salvation, for sanctification. And Lord, we look forward to seeing you face-to-face in glory and having your word perfected in us. Lord, as we walk the path of this life, help us to walk in your ways. Amen.